From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. June 12th, 2022 marks the 55th anniversary of the landmark case Loving v. Virginia, which made interracial marriage legal across the United States. We also know this day as Loving Day. This year, Loving Day has a bit of a weightier feel to it. In the recent Supreme Court leaked draft opinion on the Dobbs case, the legal reasoning that Justice Alito used to overturn Roe v. Wade could also be applied to undo Loving v. Virginia, signaling a new threat to interracial marriage as we know it. To those who say Loving v. Virginia will never be overturned, be cautious and vigilant. The United States has a long history of criminalizing, surveilling, and controlling black and brown families and the mixing of races. We must both celebrate and honor our right to marry whomever we want and work to ensure its protection in the future. Today, we're celebrating loving and discussing its connectivity to the broader attacks on our ability to build our families how we see fit. We're joined by Dr. Michelle Goodwin, a constitutional law scholar at the University of California, Irvine's School of Law, where she started and runs the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She's also the host of On the Issues, a podcast by Ms. Magazine. Michelle is an ACLU executive committee member, and I think now we can say she's a frequent at Liberty guest. Michelle, welcome back to At Liberty. Thank you so very much for having me uh, on the show, Kendall. We're so delighted to have you. So, Michelle, I want to start by getting personal for a second. You're a Black woman married to a white man. And I wonder if you have any reflection on Loving Day 55 years after the landmark decision about what this decision has meant in your life personally. It's a sobering question in light of where our nation is today. It's a a day in which we should all be celebrating what this means for our entire nation, the ability to be free and to love the people uh, who love us and love them back. That is something that is as fundamental as the air we breathe. And for me personally, it means that relationships such as mine, a marriage such as mine, just uh, two generations ago, that's something that would have been illegal and even criminalized in states across the United States. There would be free states, just like during the times of slavery, where people could literally escape to freedom and therefore avoid you know, a kind of bondage or shackling of the state, whether that is psychological shackling, physical shackling, or, or both together. So I, I love my husband. I celebrate our relationship. I celebrate my marriage. It is lovely. It is beautiful. It is uplifting. It is all things wonderful and good. And I am also deeply saddened by people who are still in this country, even though loving is the law of the land, but who live in communities that have not yet been touched by loving. You know, it's not hard to wipe away the vestiges of slavery, anti-miscegenation, et cetera, if we don't confront them and deal with them. And, you know, having a Supreme Court victory is not enough. It really isn't to get us, you know, right to the nubs in the soil and to pull them out. I want to ground set a little bit on Loving v. Virginia, just 
before we, again, dig in deeper, um, a lot of people think that loving was about love and that would be understandable because it's in the name. Um, But the case was actually about Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924, which prohibited interracial marriage and also paved the way for a series of other state laws designed to prevent racial mixing. Anti-miscegenation laws had been common in Virginia for centuries. What were these laws and why were they in place? So these laws were part of a packet, if you will, (laughs) of embedding white supremacy within American law. That's hard for people to hear it if they've never had to think about it and if they're unfamiliar with U.S. law. But the law comes about also during a time in the United States where there's white supremacy within whiteness. Around the turn of the 20th century, and you're absolutely right that the aspects of this go back centuries, but you mentioned 1924. 1927, the United States Supreme Court upheld a Virginia law, another Virginia law. This Virginia law provided for the compulsory sterilization of people who are considered socially unfit. And despite the mistake that Justice Thomas has made, and that's been picked up by Justice Alito in the leaked draft opinion involving the Dobbs case, the early iterations of eugenics in the United States were directed at poor white people, poor white people who were considered to be um, socially unfit. And the idea, and this is hard for anybody's stomach, it's hard for me to stomach, to be honest, the idea was to breed out poor white people to make sure that they no longer existed. Poor white people just for their poverty, uh, poor white people who had been homeless, poor white people who had families with histories of alcohol addiction, drug addiction, um, poor white people who had cerebral palsy, all of that, right? These were myriad laws were being um, proposed. Virginia had enacted its law. Virginia wanted to make sure that its law would Uh, be able to withstand muster from the Supreme Court. And they were right. You know, in 1927, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said three generations of imbeciles are enough. It was a case that involved a poor white girl, Carrie Buck, who had been raped and had a baby out of wedlock. And um, the court said that better than to let them starve for their imbecility, society is better off um, by preventing white, socially unfit people from continuing their kind. So when we look at anti-miscegenation in this country, it was about protecting the boundaries of whiteness. There were state fairs where white people would get awards for being purely white, very white, very blonde, very blue-eyed whiteness. And this helps to further, I think, ground the story about loving. And it's a piece of the story that's often not told because we're looking just at interracial couple, just Black folks and white folks not thinking about that broader milieu around it. And so that, you know, the, the narrative of Virginia, when they were defending this law, you know, they were suggesting that children of interracial offspring would be people who would have disabilities, that children of interracial offspring uh, would be people that themselves would inherently be genetically inferior. I want to talk about the loving specifically. Uh, the Racial Integrity Act gets a real challenge around 40 years later when Richard and Mildred Loving get charged with a felony for marrying in D.C. and then returning to Virginia. What can you tell us about their story? Well, they grew up 
together. She was younger than he, but they grew up together. Their families were around each other. But, you know, a reality is that from the times of slavery through Jim Crow, if you were poor and white, you weren't living in wealthy white neighborhoods. Uh, you were living on the poor side of the tracks. And if you were Black, you were living on poor side of the tracks. And so they were not unfamiliar to each other. And they were married and they had their marriage license, in fact, in their bedroom in fear of the potential that someone from the state might come in and surveil them and wonder who they are and why they are together and why they sleep in the same room. And in fact, that is exactly what did happen to them um, while Mildred was pregnant, um, there was a raid on their house because, heavens forbid, a white man marries a Black woman. And they were both taken to jail. She was kept longer in jail than he was. And she was pregnant. They were told, they were convicted of violating the Virginia law. And they were told that they would have to leave the state or else be subject to criminal uh, sentence not only to civil punishment, paying fine, but also incarceration. And so they left and they went to Washington, D.C. They wanted to return home to Virginia, where all of their family members were. And it was Mildred who wrote to uh, Bobby Kennedy and explained her story uh, and said that they wanted to be able to go home. And that was the spark uh, that ultimately led to the litigation, which the ACLU <laughs> was involved in. Um, and their case was challenged up to the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, what tells us so much about our country that we need to just really pause on is that the state of Virginia fought to defend its law. It's not like the state of Virginia, and you know, at the time, and we're talking about the late 1960s, right? You know, we're far, we should be far removed from slavery, right? We're 100 years after the 14th Amendment has been ratified. And the state of Virginia is like, no, I'm going to buckle up. We're going to go fight this. <laughs> you know, we, we want to perceive a world that is still perfecting whiteness, that keeps whiteness pure, that doesn't let whiteness be sullied by blackness coming in. Uh, you know, we want to fight to keep groups of people apart from each other. We're going to fight to preserve white supremacy within Virginia law and Virginia customs, culture, society. And so, you know, Virginia puts on its boxing gloves and shows up fighting to keep this law, this history in place. Yeah, lots of connections to what we're experiencing in the present. You know, what was interesting to me reading the decision was that the Supreme Court actually totally came out with it and said that... Oh, they put on their boxing gloves too. Yeah, yes. and, and it, was a un, it was unanimously... A unanimous decision. Right. and... Striking the down, And they said yes. that laws against interracial marriage were measures designed to maintain white supremacy, which was surprising to me to actually see those words being acknowledged. Um, I can't imagine that happening today. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I've been saying that there's a need for a third reconstruction and that if we see the first reconstruction as the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments that not only strike down slavery, but are meant to 
as well, strike down, eviscerate the vestiges of slavery. I mean, that's the intent, right? With that. And then if we look to the mid 60s, 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voting Rights Act, even what President Johnson is able to do for Medicaid and ending discrimination uh, at American hospitals, which is also overlooked because there were Black people dying on the front steps of hospitals that only served white folks, right? So Johnson was also doing that. And by 1966, 67, we see the at least by law, <laughs> of discrimination, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that ha- by practice the discrimination ended. We're still experiencing that. So to your point about seeing the court put that in writing, right? I mean, it is really stunning. I mean, you see Justice Douglas in a concurrence actually really being quite explicit about the various ways within law that law tolerated, condoned, promoted, created discrimination in society. And that is what the court was doing at that time during that second Reconstruction. If you were to think about almost the the literal rope and chains of colonialism, the trail of tears, the kidnapping of Black people from the coasts of Africa, the sex trafficking of Black girls and women as part of a national campaign that was slavery, right, that a part of this origin story helped to inform us about today. The reality is, and this is something that during the first Reconstruction, Congress understood, is that even if you break the chains, there's metal that still exists that forms those links. And until you completely break and stump out all of it, then we're still being connected to those origin stories in painful and powerful ways. That threads on that thick rope can fray, but if there are threads that still exist, and I dare anyone to suggest that there aren't threads that still exist, those threads do. And this was the concern of the framers of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, that there was such an addiction to white supremacy and slavery by the Confederacy, that there would have to be concerted effort to fully dismantle and to destroy it. And the reality is that it hasn't been fully destroyed. That's exactly right. (laughs) I think it's so important that we are so clear about where all of this is coming from, because I think I think that's the only way we we know how to protect it. I want to talk about the relation to Roe that Loving has. Um, in Justice Alito's leaked draft opinion in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe, he insisted that his overturn of settled precedent was limited just to abortion. But there were a lot of passing references to other cases like Obergefell, V. Hodges, the 2015 decision legalizing same-sex marriage, Griswold v. Connecticut, a 1965 decision that legalized contraceptive use, and Loving v. Virginia. In the same way as Roe v. Wade, these rights are not explicitly granted in the text of the Constitution, but rather implied by the 14th Amendment guarantee of liberty and the right to privacy. Justice Sotomayor even pinpointed these concerns in December. She also noted that Loving was actually used in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in, in that in, to affirm that decision. Uh, what is your takeaway from all these references? 
according to your read of the opinion, is loving really at stake? Well, it's hard to take seriously the guardrails that are suggested in the uh, leaked draft opinion that there are other aspects of law and privacy that will not be subject to the same kind of judicial scrutiny and dismantling, such as contraceptive access, such as uh, same-sex marriage, such as interracial marriage. But it's hard to take that uh, seriously, uh, particularly considering that um, the justices who have signed on to or who whose votes it appear would be in line with Justice Alito all said that they believed in the precedential value of Roe v. Wade itself. And it's also hard to take the take it seriously as well when you think about the fact that in that same document, there is such opportunism that is baked within the opinion. And it's, you know, further hard to take it seriously when the justices say, well, these matters can be resolved at the state level, that uh, this is where individuals can use the power of the vote. The reason why uh, it's almost cruel to uh, even pin that is the fact that it's this Supreme Court that has dismantled key provisions of the Voting Rights Act Basically, shackling, and here we have that thread and we have that chain, uh, shackling communities back to um, prior experiences in those states. I mean, let's be clear, Mississippi is the state where Black people had to guess how many bubbles on a bar of soap, jelly beans in a jar, recite the Constitution in order to be able to vote. Things that white people were not subjected to, but were the kind of Jim Crow kind of practices to keep Black people out of the vote so that when, in this leaked draft opinion, Justice Alito says, Black women just go out and vote, I want to say, well, Justice Alito, have you not read your history books about what voting looks like in the state of Mississippi? where historically Black women have been disenfranchised from that enterprise and in the backdrop of the Supreme Court's most recent dismantling of key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, Mississippi legislatures legislators have further uh, enhanced their skill and expertise in voter suppression oh, as it relates to poor Black and brown communities. So it's hard to take much seriously, but more specifically to your point as to how this may affect um, interracial um, unions or even same-sex unions, you know, signals are sent by judges and signals are sent by legislators. It's not necessary for the court to do the work if the signal has already been sent to county clerk's in places where already the vestiges, you know, um, you know, smoke up <laughs> uh, regularly, you know, a signal sent to someone who says, well, okay, this is the Supreme Court that's on my side. That means that um, people who are of different ethnic racial backgrounds should not be joined. And this Supreme Court um, has given me the signal that I can use my authority as a clerk to deny that license to that same-sex couple, to that interracial couple. That's the concern that is in part about this decision, not necessarily about what will reach the court. The court already showed in Texas with the SB8 law that it is willing to look the other way even when federal law looks different. So if you think about, for example, Roe v. Wade, 
being on the date of our recording, still the law of the land, <laughs> may not be shortly yeah. after <laughs> we publish this. But the reality is that in a state in the United States, there has been a state that has been given the imprimatur to ignore federal law. Right. I think to your point about the signaling, you know, we can we can note that Senator Mike Braun of Indiana on first ask whether or not the, you know, the federal protection of interracial marriage should be overturned and given back to the states. He said emphatically, yes, he later recanted. But I think, you know, to your point, like the message was received. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the message totally was received. And again, I think that there are people who, through love of country, would read the leaked draft opinion and say, well, sure, this will never happen, that there aren't people who have those views and values that as recently as uh, a couple weeks ago were articulated. But but for those who believe that, you know, that during the Obama administration that we became post-racial, you know, there is this, there's this view, and largely these are people who've never spent any time in the former Confederacy, <laughs> right, who have this view that things are really okay, that these are exaggerations that are being made by people of color, that these are exaggerations that are being made by people who are LGBTQ. And if that people just stopped complaining, they would see that there is a quality for all that is being promoted uh, in the very places that sadly have had these horrific histories where that has not been the case. And the reality is that in those places, for many people, there's still second, third class, fourth class citizenship. I think that's hard for folks to digest in the United States. That's something that people would want to resist, right? I think we do have a long way to go in acknowledging and recognizing that. So although cases like Loving and Roe affirmed our right to choose how we build our families, we still see families, particularly Black and Brown families, torn apart by the legacy of slavery. Can you detail some of the ways that this existed in history and explain how we see this operating in present day? I think it's really important that we understand this because if Roe were to be overturned and Loving were to be threatened, I think this will only get worse. During the period of Reconstruction, letters came to the Freedmen's Bureau written by Black families whose children were taken away from them by practice that was in the South where... Uh, white people, former slave owners, slaveholding families could drag a black child in front of a magistrate and say that um, I want this child to be an apprentice. And that child could be then lawfully subjected to five, 10 years uh, or more of so-called apprenticeship picking cotton. And you, it's heartbreaking to read those letters written in the best hand that the parents had demanding the return of their children. 
It's really heartbreaking. And so, you know, when we think about the sort of legacy of policing the families, one, you know, there are many people who've written in the space, but I think that probably nobody um, as forcefully as Professor Dorothy Roberts at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a university professor there, but has appointments in the law school, Africana studies and sociology. And her recent book, Torn Apart, really helps to lay out the foundations for so much of this. I mean, even the first book, Killing the Black Body, does. But, you know, if you look at them as bookends and their shattered bonds in between, where she talks about the state enterprise of policing and surveilling Black families and the painful legacies of children being ripped apart, away from their parents. You know, and part of this is that when Black families demanded being able to have the same kinds of resources that were being accorded to white families, it was as if the state played a cruel joke and said, well, okay, uh, if you want to be in these systems, um, then we'll show you what these systems can be. You know, there was a time in our country in which, and it's a complicated history, but there was a time in which there was greater benevolence within child protective services when they were for the benefit of white families. I would, I would say child welfare services. But when Black people um, um, were successful at um dismantling one additional vestige of discrimination such that child, you know, being able to have access to a child welfare system, it was a system that turned on them then uh, that began um, literally policing them in their homes um, through practice, showing up with random visits and whatnot to see whether these Black families were actually fit or, you know, unfit. And today we see a kind of horrible storm that has come together between war on drugs, you know, the kind of welfare queen mythology, uh, and just this sort of histories of surveillance, creating a kind of crash course in how to uh, disrupt, if not even destroy, Black families. And of course, you know, the story of this in slavery, people know, or they should know. And there's also a modern day story and they should read Dorothy Roberts' book uh, to get a full dose of what that looks like. There's a chapter in her book that's called something to the effect of they take children away at the Harlem border too, or they take black children away at the Harlem border too. I mean, gosh, it just really grabs you at your throat. Yes. Everyone needs to read Professor Dorothy Roberts. But speaking of books... Great segue. Thank you for teeing me up there. In your book, Policing the Womb, you talk about what you call a reproductive justice 2.0 or the need for a reproductive justice new deal that takes into account more than just abortion as a reproductive right. I wonder if and how loving fits into this conversation. Well, loving certainly does fit into that conversation because it's a conversation about wholeness. It is about reproduction and it is about family as well. It's about being able to create a family if, when, how one desires to and with whom one so desires. And for one's family to not be subjected to um arbitrary or purposeful, intentional um, discrimination, discrimination that's by kind of happenstance or discrimination that is by very explicit intention. 
And I will say that those kinds of protections are still needed. They really are, you know, as my family has traveled as <laughs> as a multiracial family, you know, we have moments which we can laugh about now, but um you know, we we were traveling, taking our daughter to, to college, and we decided that we were going to do it as a road trip. I didn't want the road trip. <laughs> we were going to do it as a road trip. And um, part of this involved, you know, going to Canada, coming out of Canada. We're going to go by Niagara Falls. Anyway, I'll spare you all the details of that. But we were pulled over. When we crossed into the Canadian border, we were pulled over and pulled aside and kept in, I guess, what one, de- we were detained for a few hours before my husband used what our daughter said, his white privilege. <laughs> it was just like, it's enough. Now it is time for us to go. But when we were detained and pulled over, um, there was a flashlight that was flashed on us and it was, what is this situation? Or like, we're a family. <laughs> oh and God. the guy was like, and, we're, and we said, we're taking our daughter to college. And he pulled us over. No, no reason, no anything. And I thought, well, this is very interesting, right? Because the only people who had been pulled over, uh, they looked like Muslim families. I mean, they were all brown people, black and brown people. And, uh, and I think we understood why we were pulled over. And then when it was time that we could leave, it was because my husband who was a law professor and who had just, you know, finished reading his book and got tired of it, <laughs> just said, it's time for us to go. And they responded to him and like, okay, well, you can go. Wow. I'm really sorry that happened. I realized the fact that we are uh, in that way, a, a privileged interracial couple, right? We've got tools. It was interesting to be able to observe what was happening to us. And sometimes you find yourself in a space where you're able to, witness and confirm the experiences that others, you know, have, you know, that these are still concerns in our societies. Yes. Yes. Still concerns in our societies for sure. And and to that end, I want to bring it back to where we are with loving, where we are with Roe. You know, I think part of part of the shock uh and awe of all of all of what's happening with the Supreme Court draft opinion is because of the popularity of Roe as a decision. Um, and, and, and to that end, Loving has a similar level of popularity. According to a 2021 Gallup poll, 94% of U.S. adults now approve of marriages between Black people and white people, up from 87% in the prior reading from 2013. Um, the current figure marks the highest they've ever seen. And it was just at 4% when Gallup first asked the question in 1958. Uh, We can easily use stats to comfort us, but I'm reminded that Roe also has a very high popularity among the American public. And therefore, I wonder about the safety of other popular, so to speak, rights. Um, What can you tell us about the desire to stay comfortable in that popularity and not vigilant about these rights as protection. Doing the work that's done at the ACLU and other organizations that seek to defend liberty, advance civil liberties and civil rights is hard work. It's hard work. 
And so when there are victories, one does want to take comfort in that. And I think that as a general matter, we need comfort and folks do want to, but you raise a very important point, which is that, and it's something that has been taught intergenerationally within communities of color, within Black communities, um, that one has to be nuanced. One must look at the law, not just as it's written, but as it is applied And that's the challenge that we find ourselves in, that we've not, um, we've not been able to rest just yet. And that's also, you know, heartbreaking in its own way. So on one hand, it's important to remind people of the rights that exist, right, such that people know that they can fight for their rights. That is important. That's an important part of the the work that the ACLU does rights. and that other organizations yeah. do. That's right. Know your rights. Know your rights is really important, hugely important. And yet at the same time, it is urgent that we remain vigilant. And there are people who understand this in their daily lives, right? They, they understand this with Roe. They un- understand this with Loving. They understand this with Brown v. Board of Education, Right. I mean, there are parents across this country that have to be vigilant and fight every day such that their children get an equal playing field, a fair playing field, because it's not because states aren't doing that. Right. You know, I mean, so Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, desegregating schools, hopeful for not just desegregation, but really you know, creating equality, fomenting equality. But we know that that's just simply not the case. Empirically, we know it's not the case. And so there are parents who have to fight and have to be vigilant. There are organizations that work on behalf of those issues where they are vigilant. And I think that that perhaps is just a matter of what is necessary and baked into the reality that we have in this country. That there is no right that hasn't come without a fight. And to keep those, it's sad that one would think that you have to remain vigilant. But if anything, history has taught us that that absolutely happens to be the case. Thank you, Michelle, for all of your knowledge, for your historical analysis, for your brain, your work, your spirit, all of those things. We, We deeply appreciate that you are so generous with your time and talents with us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org slash keep fighting. That's aclu.org slash keep fighting. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.